what will you do with the word? This morning, as we opened the text, we read verses 4 through 15. Though I, I do want you to remember that 4 through 21 really go together. Parable of the, you call it what you will, the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, the parable of the soils. Any of those will work. He teaches that parable. He explains it to his followers. He builds upon it with a second parable. And then from a real life situation, he makes application of them. But in those first verses, verses 4 through 15, we're exhorted to reflect on how we receive the word. Remember, the parts of the parable are identified. We had the sower. In direct context is Jesus Christ himself. However, by extension, anyone who sows the seed is a sower. And then we saw the seed is the word of God. And then the soils are those who have the privilege of coming under the sound of God's word. But as we looked through that parable, I hope you understand that Jesus' focus was not the sower. It wasn't the seed. Jesus' focus is the soils. His focus causes us to reflect on how we receive the word. And we saw that he describes four types of soils. The first reveals to us that some hear but do not believe. Are you someone who has heard the word perhaps over and over again? but never believed in Jesus. Then, there are others who hear and receive, but they fall away because of temptations. Whether experiencing temptations to sin or trials of faith, are we prone to move away from or closer to God? Friends, let me just encourage you, whether facing temptations to sin or trials of faith, allow those to drive you to God, not away from Him. And then others here and are overcome, not by temptations or trials, but by distraction. Is your focus so much in this world that the efficacy of God's word is being choked out? Friends, we can be focused on things that are good. Things that are right. It's good. It's right to work to provide for yourself and your family. It's good. It's right to spend time with your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, to train them, to encourage them, to fellowship with them. 
it is fine to enjoy creation. The beauty that God has given us in this world. It's good to spend time with other people. To fellowship with others. But if we are so focused on all of these other things that the efficacy of God's word is being choked out, we need to take a step back, ask ourselves some questions, figure out what we need to do to reprioritize to make sure that God's word has the place in our lives that it should. And then others truly hear the word. And we saw that those who truly hear the word demonstrate sincerity. They come to the word of God with an honest and a good heart. They come hungry and thirsty to receive what I need from God. Exposure is putting myself in the place where I will hear the word. Obedience is holding fast to the word with carefulness and determination, not letting go of what I've heard and received. And then faithfulness. How faithful am I in sowing, in watering, preparing to reap? And again, understand that so often we put that in the context of sowing the seed of the gospel for others. Certainly that's a proper application. But in the parable of the soils, the sower, the seed, whatever you want to call it, in that parable, the focus is not What are you doing to help others hear the word? The focus is, what are you doing with the word? What fruit is the the word bearing in your life? What will you do with the word? But that brings us to the remainder of the passage where Jesus teaches the second parable that builds on the first and then applies the theme of the parable to a real-life situation. So look, if you would, at Luke chapter 8. We will not step back to read verses 4 through 15 again. Instead, we'll jump in on verse number 16 and read through verse 21. Luke chapter 8, verse 16. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed. But setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Take heed therefore how ye hear. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, And could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. This morning we reflected on how we receive the word. Number two, I want you to reflect on how I reveal the word. Reflect on how I reveal the word. 
And what we find is how I reveal the word builds on how I receive the word. And the context identifies this. Let's take a step back for a moment. When Jesus teaches the parable of the soils in verses 4 to 8, who is he addressing? It's more than his disciples, isn't it? Look back at the context of verse 4. Who's he addressing? Yeah, a crowd. We, we don't know exactly where he is. He's traveling around Galilee, teaching in the cities and villages. And at some point during this tour of Galilee, a multitude comes to him. And he teaches that multitude the parable of the soils. There were those in that crowd who were the first kind of soil that heard the word but didn't believe. There were others in that crowd who heard and received, but because of trials and temptations, they fell away. There were those in the crowd who heard the word, but the word was ineffective in their lives because the cares of the world and riches and pleasure choked out the efficacy of God's word. There were those in the crowd who truly heard they were the good soil. He's teaching that parable to a crowd. But what about the parable in verses 16 through 18? The parable of this light on a candlestick not being hid. Who's he teaching this parable to? His disciples. Remember, he's, he's come apart from the crowd and his disciples have asked for an explanation of the parable of the soils. What, what does this mean? Why, why are you teaching in parables and what does it actually mean? And Jesus tells them why he's using parables. That's why we read from Isaiah 6, by the way, this morning in our, in our service, because Isaiah's um, call to ministry mimics what Jesus is doing, that some will see but not actually see, hear but not actually hear. Some won't be converted and won't be healed, even though they are hearing from the, the Son of God himself. But now Jesus is with his disciples, and it's to them that he speaks this parable of the light on the candlestick. It's to them, those who are followers of Jesus, those who, whom we would assume would be good soil people. These are those who are hearing the word of God, believing the word of God, and putting it into practice in their life. And Jesus now says, okay, you are the ones, you're receiving the word of God the way you should. But if we're going to build on that, if we're going to go beyond that, then you need to understand something. It's not just about how you receive the word, it's about how you reveal the word. So what is the word of God? I suppose we could answer that question a, a multitude of ways. We could we could talk about, well, God's word is the Bible. God's word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God's word is, is this and that. We could come up with different answers. But the gist of it in this parable, in this passage, in the message is God's word is truth. God's word is truth. Jesus is teaching. 
in this section of the passage could be concisely summarized this way. If you receive the truth, then you should reveal the truth. If tonight you could sincerely and transparently and honestly declare, I am a good soil person. I'm someone who, to the best of my knowledge, honestly, before the Lord, I receive God's word the way he intends me to. Then Jesus would say to you, as he did to his disciples, okay. The next step then is, how do you reveal the word? Are you revealing it? If you receive it, you should reveal it. My son, Michael, has at times enjoyed this little activity, this, um, this prank. Uh, when someone's in a room and, you know, maybe the curtains are already pulled or it's dark outside of flipping the switch off and, and leaving the room in total darkness. It's really kind of a cruel joke. I have no idea who he gets it from. Some of you may know, may, may have realized or heard, Joanna, my sister-in-law, was actually my fifth and sixth grade teacher in elementary school. And that was pre-sister-in-law status. And I know she'll be amazed to hear this because she knows that I was a perfect angel as a student at school. But... Um, even pre-fifth and sixth grade, you know, in elementary school, you have a, a set restroom time during the day, maybe two. And, you know, it was elementary guy-type behavior to, you know, they'd send us in, I don't remember, two or three at a time or whatever, and, and to have this little prank where, you know, if you're the the second of the three out and one more is in there to flip the switch off and leave somebody in total darkness. I never did that. Maybe I did. But you know, it was kind of a cruel joke to leave someone there in total darkness. Can I ask you to apply it spiritually? As humorous as that may be, a prank or a joke like that, Put it in a spiritual context. What about us? If we've received the light, the truth, when we cover up the light and continue to allow others to remain in darkness, isn't that what Jesus essentially says? In essence, you hear Jesus almost sarcastically, who in the world would go into a room and light a candlestick to give light to the room and to the surroundings and then hide the light, cover it up, put it on under a bed? That doesn't even make any sense. It's illogical. Rather, the purpose of lighting that candlestick is to 
give light to the surroundings, not only for the person who lit the candle, but also for anyone who would come into the room to see the light. Jesus demonstrates that this kind of behavior is foolish. It's not sensible to light a candle and then hide the light of the candle from others. And so Jesus says to his disciples, if you are these who receive God's word, and by the way, Jesus says they are, because he says back in verses 9 and 10, when they've asked him, why do you teach in parables? He says essentially, there's a reason for it. And part of that reason is because it's been given to you, you disciples, to know the mysteries of God. You have been chosen to know the truth. Were they chosen to know the truth so they could lock it away in their hearts and keep it to themselves? No. You've been chosen to know the mysteries of God so that in time you can reveal the mysteries of God. I've chosen you specifically to if I can put it this way, to show you the truth so that in time you can show the truth to others. I have chosen you to reveal the light to you so that in, in another time you can shine the light for others so that they can see the way too. You see, being a person who is good soil, who receives the word as God intends, also brings a responsibility to then reveal the word to others. How should we do that? How should we reveal the word? How should we shine our light? How should we share the truth? Let's step back. And remember that this parable builds on the first. In direct context, who is the sower? Jesus. But again, by extension, anyone who then receives the word themselves are to become sowers. Think about it in in the agricultural terms. If the seed fell on good soil, what was the result? What came? Fruit. Now think about this in agricultural terms. Characteristically, fruit has something inside of it. What? Seeds. And what is the purpose of the seeds? To bear more fruit. To reproduce, right? Isn't it amazing the, the way the Holy Spirit, that Jesus, the master teacher, builds and progresses and is such a perfect picture. The sower sows the seed when the seed falls on good soil, fruit is produced. Fruit has within it seed. 
or seeds that then can be taken and used and and replanted and rewatered to produce more fruit. The purpose of the seed within the fruit is reproduction. So the sower sows the seed. The seed falls on good soil. Those who receive the word, the seed produces fruit. The word of God working in your life and mine, we receive it, produces fruit in us. That fruit itself contains seed that we are then to take and sow for the purpose of reproduction. God literally desires you and I to reproduce ourselves. By revealing his word, sharing the truth. If you receive the word of God as he intends you to, then naturally reproduction takes place. In this way, you then become a sower. Sowing the seed, spreading the seed, God's word. Interestingly, Jesus describes a normal occurrence in Middle Eastern agricultural history. You may wonder, why would the sower spread the seed in these different kinds of soils? You ever thought that when you look at this parable? I I mean, I don't see farmers today... Um, going out and putting their seed on the street and in a rocky field or in a a weed-infested field, farmers typically prepare the soil and spread the seed in good soil, right? That's the plan. That's the purpose. Why would the sower be throwing seed in soil that's not It's not um, compatible with growth. Well, in Middle Eastern agricultural history, often the sower would spread the seed and then plow the field. That's backwards from our thinking in the way we do it today, right? You go out and you prepare the field, you you plow the field, and then you plant the seed. In that day, no, they, they just go to the place and they they sow the field and then they plow it to mix up the seed into the ground what does that what does that do for me as far as spiritually speaking goes and here's what it means for you and me stop examining the soil and just spread the seed pastor what do you mean by that have you ever found yourself in a place where if you, if you give thought to sharing the word, to spreading the word, to revealing the word to others, have you found yourself in a place where, where maybe you take a step back and you kind, of, you kind of try to examine somebody first? Should I share the word? Should I not? Should I give them a track? Should I not? Well, well they look pretty clean cut. Maybe they already, already know the Lord or... They're pretty scary. I, I want to do as little bit interaction as possible. We're not going to go there. We will go there. Whatever the case may be. Jesus used the parable he did for a purpose. 
that sower didn't go out and and look and examine, I'm going to make sure this is good soil before I throw the seed. I'm going to make sure to the best of my ability that this is someone who's going to receive what I have to offer before I offer it. No. Jesus said the sower went out and he spread the seed. Where? Everywhere. I mean for you and I stop examining the soil and spread the seed you know I think sometimes we overthink it a little bit sometimes we take too long just considering and examining maybe we ought to just get more busy spreading the seed and, and not so busy examining the soil thinking about it let's just be busy spreading the seed Reflect on how you reveal the word. And then finally, I'll hasten on. Reflect on how I receive the word, how I reveal the word, and then reflect on how I respond to the word. This is a fascinating portion of scripture to me. Verses 19 through 21. In the midst of this discussion of the word, the Bible tells us here that Jesus' mother... Hey, here's Mary. She doesn't show up a lot in Scripture outside of the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. His birth, his early childhood, his crucifixion. But here she shows up. His brethren are there too. And as this crowd is gathered and Jesus is teaching, someone comes to him with a message, Hey, your mom, your brothers are here. There's no purpose given. Although what's very interesting is that you look at other passages of Scripture and, and we don't know a lot about Mary's thought. I, I, would, I would think that Mary had some understanding of, of who Jesus was, certainly. She was told by an angel. He, he was virgin, conceived, and born. She had a good idea. I, I would imagine that Mary, in that sense, her, her belief, though maybe her understanding was incomplete, her belief was in Jesus, her son. His brothers, not so much. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, in another context, tells us that as Jesus was teaching a crowd, his, his friends, it's put there, though, though his brothers are included in that, they show up and they want to take him away from the crowd because the Bible says they believed he was beside himself. In case you're unsure what that means, it means they thought he had gone mad. He was out of his mind. He was crazy. In John chapter 7, the Bible tells us that, that Jesus had to withdraw from Judea and Jerusalem to an extent because... The Jews were seeking his life. Was Jesus avoiding God's plan? No, it just wasn't God's time. And Jesus understood that. But because of that, his brothers, according to the flesh, began to poke fun at him. And John tells us in his commentary of the, of the event that neither did his brethren believe in him. I have to think that one of the most difficult experiences of Jesus' life 
was his own natural family, human family, not believing in him. One of the most notable to us was his brother James. You talk about a skeptic. I, I don't know how much younger James was than Jesus. I know he was younger because Jesus was Mary's firstborn. I, I don't know how much younger James was than Jesus, but, but I have to believe that James, along with the other brothers, examined Jesus' life carefully. They saw him growing up. They, they saw the way that he behaved himself. They had to recognize that even if they were good, law-abiding Jews, something was different about Jesus. He didn't talk back to mom and dad. He was never disrespectful. He had wisdom not just beyond his years. He had wisdom beyond anything that humanity could conceive of. They examined him carefully. And yet, they didn't believe him. They saw him go about. They heard some of what he taught. Certainly, they, they were aware of and even witnessed some of his works. And yet, they did not believe him. And the Bible's clear, it's not until after Jesus dies on a cross, it's not after he, until he's resurrected from the grave that his brethren even believe. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, tells us that one of the specific people that Jesus appeared to was somebody named James. Was it James, the brother of John, one of the, the disciples? No. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus dies on a cross, is buried, and rises again. And up to that point, his family, including his brother James, don't even believe in him. But then Jesus appears to James, his brother. Can you imagine that meeting? Wow, what a meeting that must have been. But then, James believes. He places his faith in Jesus. To the extent that James, the writer of James... You know, don't you, that James is not written by James the disciple. It's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe him until after his resurrection. And James writes in James chapter 1, James, the servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It took him a while, but he finally came around and responded to the word. But at the time of this event in Luke chapter 8, he's among his other brothers who don't believe. He's, he's like that soil. He's heard the word. And Satan's come and taken the seed away. He, he just doesn't believe at all. 
He, he's not one who fell away because of temptation and trial. He's not one who, who the, the word was choked out because of the cares of the world. He just simply doesn't believe. But after time, the seed's been planted. It's been watered again and again. The seed's been replanted and watered and replanted and watered. And finally he responds and he believes. We don't know this from the word of God, but the earliest church historians tell us that James, who went on to be the, an elder, perhaps even what we might think of as the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem, early church historians tell us that he was martyred for his faith and bold witness in Jesus when the Jewish leaders took him and threw him off the pinnacle of the temple. And when that didn't kill him, they began stoning him, and when he didn't die from the stoning, someone finally came down to the club and just bashed his, his head in. He gave his life for Christ. But at the time of this event, he didn't believe. And when they came calling on Jesus, perhaps like in Mark chapter 3, to get him away from the crowd because they think he's crazy, Jesus made a profound statement. Look at it again in verse 21. He answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. My mother, my brethren. What's Jesus speaking? Is he rejecting his earthly family? No. But he's making a profound statement those who hear the word and do it, these are his family. In other words, closeness and intimacy with Christ is about my response to his word. And so let me ask you tonight a couple of questions. How Close do you feel to Jesus? Pastor, you know, I, I don't feel real close. I, I haven't felt real close to Jesus for some time. In fact, if I were honest with you tonight, I'd say I feel pretty distant from Jesus. Well, then I would have to ask you, how do you regularly respond to his word? Because Jesus in this text, and by the way, other passages of scripture, is pretty clear. That when we are receiving his word and responding to it as he intends us to, that brings us into closeness and intimacy with him. You, you look through Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And over and over again, the letter concludes with a statement like this. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Then Jesus pronounces blessings and commendation on those who hear and those who overcome. And regularly through those seven letters, the commendation to those who hear and those who overcome 
is some blessing or commendation that is connected to this idea of closeness and intimacy with him. For instance, in, in one of the letters, he, he speaks of giving the one who overcomes, the one who hears a name that only the two of them know. He, he talks about a stone, which, which in the culture was this particular token of friendship. Over and over again, he connects listening, truly hearing the word, and overcoming with this close-knit intimacy with him. How do I get that? It's tied directly to how I respond to the word. Those who hear the word and do it. These are my mother, my brethren. So how do you receive the word? How do you reveal it? How do you respond to it? These parables, the explanation, the application from your life are all about what will you do with the word? 